So verse 1, uh, Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your, your pure minds by way of reminder. So first thing that catches my, my eye is Peter is addressing the beloved. In this second letter, there's no church that is specified, but he basically is writing to uh, in, in, in the first chapter, verse 1, he's addressing uh, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, he was addressing believers at the time, but he could, he could be very well writing to us today, like he was writing to future believers as well. Um, he's expressing his love for the church, uh, believers, uh, those with pure minds who have purified their hearts, cleaned up their sinful ways, but who need to be reminded. In other words, their minds need to be stirred up again to the truth they were taught. Peter's love for God's sheep is as a result of his love for the Lord. And this takes me back to the story in John 21 the story of breakfast at the seashore. Uh, we'll, we will all recall how after his resurrection, the Lord met his disciples there at the seashore and made them breakfast. In that story, the Lord had asked Peter three times if he loved him. Of course, of course that's not a coincidence to the number of times that Peter had denied the Lord. And every time Peter had answered, Yes, I love you. And the Lord had replied three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Uh, okay, just a little technical problem here. Okay, I think we're, we're back on track. That's good. Um, so this is his second letter, and in, in both letters, he's, he's reminding. We remind because it's important, and what he's about to say in this particular passage is just as important. At this point, he's already covered, reminded uh, the believers of various things, but this time he's warning about the scoffers, the end of days, and a final judgment. So, verse 2, Peter says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Holy prophets and the apostles. What Peter is saying is to remember what the holy prophets said. Uh, what they spoke, the words that they wrote. And uh, Peter's original audience would have been the Jews, the, the Jewish people. And they would have known about the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets because it was part of their heritage. Um, this is where we find scripture is telling them to 
read scripture. So we'll go to Psalm 75, uh, sorry, 78, uh, 5 to 7, and it reads, For he established a tes testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Peter writing the apostles in the same sentence as the holy prophets, meaning uh, placing the commandment of us, the apostles, is what he's saying. Placing that at the same level as the prophets is significant because it means Peter understood at that time that they were being inspired to write as well, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. Which proves to be true today as we read his writing 2,000 years later as God's word and, and apply God's word to our lives. Peter could not have understood this on his own, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just pointed out in, earlier in his letter, um, um, in, uh, um, sorry, I'm having trouble reading. Yeah, in, in, the, in the second letter, chapter one, verse 20, uh, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He includes all the apostles of the Lord having given the power to write, even though not all of them wrote. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament, 22 if you exclude the book of Hebrews, were written by the apostles. He mentions Paul's writing at the end of the, of the letter, which means Peter was aware that Paul was writing as well. So that Paul's contribution to the New Testament scriptures, oops, sorry, um, that Paul's um, contribution to the New Testament scriptures would also be on the same level. Of course, there were also other writers of the New Testament. Uh, without getting into a study of a timeline of when each book was written, Peter may have been aware of others writing as well. There's no doubt Paul's contribution was significant to the New Testament. Um, although we don't really know why, Peter just mentions him. Uh, we know, for instance, that the Apostle John, whose writing was equally significant, wrote later, after Peter's death. So he probably would not have known about John, John writing. Uh, 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 part of the New Testament. Uh, moving on to the next verse. Um, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So now Peter's talking about the scoffers or the mockers in the last days. So first, a reminder here in this passage is that believers ought to remember there will be scoffers in the last days. 
scoffers or mockers, people who mock God, his word, and do not fear him. The last days is considered as the period since the Lord's first coming and ascension and until he comes back. In the days of Peter, the scoffers would have been of the same generation. They would have seen or heard directly or indirectly from the Lord himself. And we're expecting him to return anytime, bring his judgment and set up his kingdom. If they only knew that they could have waited another 2,000 years, they would still be waiting because God's schedule is his, not ours. Scoffers who walk according to their own lusts or sinful desires and want to be their own gods, only accountable to themselves. It is not unreasonable to think there's a link here between these scoffers and the false teachers Peter just described in the previous chapter. I think it's important to remind ourselves again who these false teachers were. So back to chapter 2, verse 12, these false teachers were described as this, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed using abusive speech where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of his creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishers, reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So then Peter goes on, verse 4, saying, and, and saying, the scoffers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the, from the beginning of creation. As it were 2,000 years ago, uh, today people just carry on just as we have since creation. People die, people are born, and the cycle just repeats itself, and life just continues on as it has always been with no purpose or direction. Just because the Lord hasn't come doesn't mean that his coming is a myth. He is coming. Uh, the world today has also become more skeptical with advances of technology. People can create their own reality, their own world, lead people astray in a way that was not possible 2,000 years ago. because of tools that we can use to spread information. Many are atheists as a result, and as much as science and technology have brought us a better understanding of our universe, they continually think they are inching closer to explaining how we all came to be. So same old, Things continue as they were, but God reminds us in Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. The workings of God will always be a mystery to mankind, 
It is for his glory and will never come to a full understanding of God. But he has also allowed mankind to discover some of that glory, to search out the matter. But this is where the great minds are trapped to think that they can continue to figure out how it all came to be without God behind it. It's like the clay telling the potter how the pot was made. Personally, the more we discover the complexity of the universe we live in, the more I see God's work at hand. Paul predicted this as he writes, as he wrote in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 3 to 4, in the context of the last days. Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Continuing on, so now we're on verse 5. Peter says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then, that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So the point is, scoffers forget that the world existed and it then perished. Peter points out that scoffers forget that God judged his creation once and God will do it again. The world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. In other words, the judgment that God poured out on the earth in the days of Noah. We all know the story of the flood. Mankind was so corrupt. God cleaned it up, so to speak, by wiping out mankind, except for eight people, Noah's family. So going back to Genesis 7, uh, verse 10, it reads, Now it came about after the seven days that the waters of the flood came out upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life in the second month on the seventh day of the month on that day all the fountains of a great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open the rain, uh, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights you'll see how Peter's uh, when he wrote about how the earth was in the water ties into what Moses wrote in Genesis when Moses wrote that all of the fountains of a great deep burst open, it meant that there was a lot of water under the earth. So the earth, the earth was in the water. And that water burst open in order to create the kind of flood needed to immerse the earth. It wasn't just the rain for 40 days and nights. Unfortunately, Noah, we've got the same problem. As righteous as he was, he had the same problem as the first man, Adam. Because as his descendant, he inherited the same problem, sin. And we all know the story of him getting caught drunk and naked. Well, it's not very godly. So he fell short too. As Paul puts it in Romans, 
5.12, therefore, just as one through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind, because all sin. So things will not get better with Noah's descendants. Mankind will go astray again. We're proof of it today. God needed the perfect human to restore things as he originally intended, a man without sin. Of course, his son became the only solution to this problem when God sent him in the flesh 2,000 years ago to conquer sin once and for all. So then Peter moves on to verse 7 and says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of un ungodly men. Peter then talks about how God is going to clean it up again, this time for good. But this time God will not flood the earth again. He made a promise he was never going to do that again, but use fire to bring his judgment at this time. Preserved by the same word, Verse uh, 7, Peter starts with the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, shows us how God spoke the universe into existence and presently maintains the universe we live in. God is always in full control. He will be able to judge it, as he says, when the time comes. In Colossians 1, 15 to 17, Paul describes God in the person of his son as follows. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the, in the heavens and on, on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities. All things have been created for him and for him. He is before things he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So how God is going to use fire on this day of judgment, we don't know. But here's an interesting tidbit I picked up as I was looking at this study. We'll recall how back in Genesis, the earth was in the water and God let the fountains of a great deep burst open to flood the earth. It is a scientific fact today that the core of the earth is extremely hot. The surface of the earth is basically sitting on a massive ball of fire. That's what we see when, uh, that's what we see come out of one of the volcanoes erupts, and we, we, can, we see how much damage one volcano can do. Well, the next judgment could very well be letting the fountains of a great deep burst open again. But this time it will be fire and not water. I'm not suggesting that this is how it's going to play out. I don't know. I, it's not my place to speculate. I just don't know. But it shows God has already set up things according to his plan. He knows the plan. Just because we don't, he knows. And then Peter goes on to say, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. P 
Peter reminds his audience that the Lord's timing is his, not ours. Only he decides when things are going to play out. This is not a mathematical formula comparing a thousand years to a day. Um, It is simply a way to illustrate that for God, time is irrelevant. On On an eternal scale, there is no such thing as time. For time to exist, it must have a beginning and an end. And eternity does not have a beginning or an end. Okay, I covered that. So, uh, next one, next verse is verse 9. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord is not slack or slow. God always keeps his promise. He won't be too early or late because his timing is perfect. Again, the idea of time is not something God bothers with. Mankind is conscious of time because in in many ways we only have a limited amount of it. If we're impatient about his timing, it's because of God's own patience and kindness towards men. In Romans 2.4, Paul writes, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and, rest- and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He wants to give mankind as much time to repent. We're not to take lightly how long it's taking him because his desire is none should perish, but all come to repent. When that time will come to an end, we don't know. But the Great Commission continues on to reach all people on earth. It will be up to God to decide when mankind is done hearing hearing about his son, or everyone is done hearing. To quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Paul writes it like this in Titus 2, 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel continues on to reach and bring salvation to all people. Now we move on to verse 10. says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. So day of the Lord is a time, will be a time of judgment. The day doesn't necessarily reflect the one day period, but a time period when God will start his plan to begin begin the end of human history as we know it in order to restore things again, but this time for good. Uh, without getting into the end times, that's an, 
That's an area of study on its own. It's called eschatology, and not an easy one at that. But the point is, just because it hasn't happened in 2,000 years, we should not be complacent about when this will happen. It will come in like a thief in the night, and the thief doesn't announce himself prior to coming. He takes you by surprise. So will this day. As the Lord says in Matthew 24, 36 to 39, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Heavens and earth will be burned up. The ultimate outcome of the Lord's return will be a transformation of the universe as we know it today. All the things and works on this earth will be burnt up. Heavens will pass away to make room for a new heaven and earth. So Peter says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons are you to be? in holy conduct and godliness. Holy conduct and godliness. In this short passage that we just read, Peter reminds us at least five times how the current earth and heavens will dissolve. It won't always be like it is now. This is not an eternal destination. If we're living for eternity rather than the temporary, should we not conduct ourselves accordingly? in a godly way? Are we living by the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul describes in Galatians 5, 23? Are we living in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Peter says, things will be dissolved, and we ought to be looking looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Coming day of God. Day of God is not to mean day of the Lord. Day of God is the eternal state of when things will be made right. Day of the Lord will be a time of tribulation and judgment. In many ways, it makes sense. Day of God has a different meaning. As we look forward to the day when things will be made right, not to tribulation and judgment. And to hasten, meaning to earnestly desire, in this case, the coming of that day when things will be made right, for which heaven and earth will have to be dissolved first. Finally, last verse, it says, nevertheless, sorry, um, yeah, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as God promised, and he always keeps his promises, there will be a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Sin will no longer be. Sin would have passed away. John puts it like this. 
in Revelation 21, uh, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. <clears throat> 